Mark chapter 6. Man, we're just at a blazing pace here, aren't we? Continuing in this story, this incredible story, following on the heels of of one of the most well-known miracles in all of the gospel accounts is another of maybe the most well-known stories. I would call it a sign. Jesus walking on the water. I would guess that many of us would say, I, I know that story. But I wonder, do we really? Do we really know the, the primary message of this story? Are we sure? Would we call it a sign or just a story or a miracle? Let's read Mark chapter 6, verse 45 through 52. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with, with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts had become hardened. What is the main message here? The center of this passage We've looked at both the center of the, the last story and some of the margins, many things that we can learn. But we start with the center, at least striving to find the primary message. I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit and, and invite you into how to study the Bible. And what I try to do every week is I prepare to preach with a couple hermeneutical principles. Hermeneutic simply means a way to study or read the scriptures and understand it. This is vital as we read through scriptures and want to enter the story or apply it in our lives. Now, some of you, this is going to be significant and, and vastly encouraging for, and others of you are already checking your watch and yawning. So I, I totally understand. Uh, but this is, the, this is the process of hearing and receiving God's word. Number one, we ask, what is the main message of the entire book or letter that we are looking at? So this applies not just to this specific passage and Jesus walking on the water, because I think it's been mistaught. I've heard it mistaught. I think I've mistaught it. What is the primary message of the entire letter or book that we are listening to? If we do not know that, we cannot assume we understand any smaller portion of the story or any passage that we are reading, or in this case, Jesus walking on the water. We must understand the primary message of the author and what they are intending. If we're unsure, then at best we can say, I'm unsure of the primary meaning of this passage, but I believe it may mean such and such, which is okay in humility to, to take scripture that way and say, I don't quite know yet. I'm uncertain, but this is how I'm receiving or processing it today. Do we know Mark's primary message? I think so. I think we have, we've centered around that a number of times. Mark is revealing God's kingdom that it has come and is coming in greater and greater fullness in Jesus, and Jesus is the king of that kingdom. 
The kingdom is unlike any earthly kingdom or empire. It's upside down, which is the tagline we've hung on this. It's upside down from our perspective, from a worldly perspective, because this kingdom is established on love, service, justice, and mercy. It brings healing, wholeness, freedom, and salvation. The one who has all power in this kingdom chooses to give that power away, to serve, to empower others. The weak are made strong. The blind see, the voiceless are heard, the captives are set free, and the oppressed are delivered. This is Mark's primary message and what he is revealing. This is good news, according to Mark. Good news to the world, to all, except for those who currently hold power and want to wield it over others, because they must be removed from that power that the rightful king can rule It's available to walk in this kingdom, to live in this kingdom, to receive this kingdom, to all peoples who would repent, metanoia, who would see rightly, who would change their way of thinking and see with kingdom eyes and come into this kingdom. Furthermore, if Mark shows us transparently that this is difficult for all peoples, this is not easily received or easily seen or easily accepted. Jesus is the unexpected one. Though they should have, so so many, especially the Jews, should have been expecting this kind of Messiah, they were not, and they did not receive him. Even those closest to him, these 12 disciples, continually were surprised by Jesus, terrified by him, shocked by him. After all that they continued to see and experience, they are still struggling to see him rightly, Receive him for who he is, understand his teaching and his message, and to walk in it faithfully. And Mark doesn't hesitate to show us the difficulty people have in seeing and receiving and understanding the kingdom. And that should give us hope as we try to walk into the kingdom, to see it rightly. That we should never be quick to assume we understand it fully. We should with humility say, I am coming to walk in the kingdom. I am coming to follow Jesus more fully, to see him rightly, to surrender my life for him, to represent him in all of his kingdom ways. I'm growing and need to continue to grow in this. That is the right response. That is the main message of Mark. So we must begin there when we come to a specific passage, and especially in a sermon series where we're walking slowly through this and pulling out these these powerful or even radical, miraculous stories If we don't hold that primary message in mind, we can get lost in the margins or in the weeds and miss the primary message. With that held, that Mark is trying to reveal the kingdom of God, Jesus as its king, what it means to believe in that king and to follow him, we can confidently assume when we come to this passage of Jesus walking on the water, that that's what he is still intending to do. That's what he is trying to emphasize. How is this the kingdom of God coming? The revelation of of his kingdom and who the king is. How does this miracle of walking on the water or this sign reveal that? So that's number one. And that can be applied to any part of scripture that we might read. Before we claim to understand that piece of it, we better understand the primary message that that author was trying to communicate or question he was trying to answer. Number two, and it is related Next hermeneutic principle. If any part of a story or a passage does not make sense, we stumble over a a line or maybe even a word, but a line, a phrase, and we say, 
That doesn't make sense. I don't understand that. We better not assume we understand the passage. We better not teach the rest of it or confidently that what it means. But I don't know this part of it, but don't worry about that. It means we cannot confidently claim we know that passage. And that applies to all Bible study. We can say, I don't know what that means. I need to grow in that, or I need to try. There certainly are parts contextually where an author will write, assuming his audience with first century or even earlier ears will naturally understand what he means and respond to it. We, so far removed, may never come to grasp that. So at best we can say, here's our best understanding of this. We don't know quite how to fit this phrase or this line in. We don't know exactly why the author put that in. So we hold loosely the meaning of this passage or this text. Doesn't mean we can't draw anything from it. Doesn't mean we can't apply it and walk in it. But we cannot confidently claim we understand it if we stumble over or are confused about a passage. So let's press in. Did any of, in this passage, did any line or phrase jump out to you and you said, I don't understand that. Why, what does that mean? For me, one jumped right off the page. This story of Jesus walking on the water shows up at two other times. Matthew chapter 14 and John chapter 6. In Matthew 14, we also have the account of Peter getting out of the boat because Jesus invites him and walking on the water. You may remember that story. That does not show up here. So the primary message of this passage, the primary story and application is not, Jesus walked on water, so can you if you have enough faith. Have courage. Have you heard that that message preached? The get out of the boat sermon? The just gotta have faith sermon? Don't set your eyes on earthly things. You'll start sinking in this world. Set your eyes on Jesus. and fi- Now, there may be application there. And I've probably preached a message similar to that. But that's not here in Mark. Actually, many believe that Mark, or whoever the author is who is ascribed as Mark, got most of his information from Peter as a firsthand source. Which I think actually makes sense why it's removed here that Peter would say, no, leave that part out. That is That gets eyes off Jesus. That was my my bumblingness. Yes, I got to experience it for a moment, but no, leave that part out. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. This phrase that jumped out to me, and maybe, maybe it did to you, is this phrase, he meant to pass by them. Jesus had sent them out on, on the journey, said, I'll come and meet you. He remains on the mountainside to pray And then he sees them, I believe, with kingdom eyes, because they're quite a ways off, and it's the middle of the night. You think he saw them physically. He saw them and their struggle against the winds. He meant to pass by them, but they saw him. Do we not stumble over that phrase? I stumble over that. I think I've just skipped over it before in my Bible study. This is the first time I've preached specifically from this passage in Mark. Reading a couple different commentators, there's different opinions about what this meant, which means we're uncertain, which means we can't be certain we know the primary message being taught here if we can't explain this. I think there is an explanation. But I read two different things, that Jesus must have been frustrated or angry or annoyed with the disciples, and so he meant to pass by them and meet them on the other side. I I also read that he wanted them to struggle again against the winds. They still hadn't learned what it meant to trust him in the storms of life. Perhaps there's some application there, maybe a little better than the first one. I don't think he was angry or annoyed with his disciples. But doesn't this bring even a bigger question? 
If Jesus meant to pass by them in the middle of the night, in the middle of the storm, could he not have done it? Did he make a mistake? In a very large lake, was he not able to walk far enough away from them that they wouldn't have seen him and he could have passed by them? And we can't, if we can't answer those questions, then we cannot rightly understand why is that phrase even there? What is Mark trying to show us? But that all of this reads the intention of Jesus into the passage. The intention of that phrase, he meant to pass by them. We read, I think most of us read, he meant for them not to see him. And I believe it is the opposite. By the story of scripture, I believe he meant that absolutely they would see him. That's what he meant by I will pass by them. It's statements like these. When you study scripture, when you read scripture that are either going to infuriate you, depending probably on your personality, or just intrigue you deeply, because it's, it's, they are often the key that unlocks the full meaning of a passage or a story. If we can rightly understand or find an answer that fits the whole story and that phrase or that word, we can rightly receive it and respond. So I see yawns and Time checks and others just leaning into this. I was exactly right in my perception. Armed with these two hermeneutic principles, let's dive in. Not to the main point that Jesus walked on water and so can you if you have enough faith. But what does this he meant to pass by them mean if the primary message is revealing the kingdom of God and the king in his glory? What does it mean? I think we often miss that. For a Jew living in that first century, I think that phrase would have jumped off the page if they knew their scriptures, more so even than a man walking on water. Though That is pretty amazing. That seems to be what attracts us and gets our attention. But this phrase he meant to pass by them would have resonated with scripture. There's a famous account of God revealing himself to the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19. You can tap there if you would like. He's on Mount Horeb. He had fled for his life after a threat from Jezebel that she was going to come and kill him. She took it on oath to put him to death because of the way he was righteously, or at least striving righteously in justice to return the nation to God. You may remember the story. Elijah is up on Mount Horeb in a cave, and God reveals himself to Elijah. First, a windstorm comes. Then an earthquake comes, right? Then a a great fire comes and God is not found in any of them. Though in some ways he's clearly revealing that he is, he is there. And then what happens? God speaks in a gentle whisper and Elijah hears him. But previous to this account, the Lord says to Elijah, 1 Kings 19, 11, go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. His glory is about to come before you. He's about to make himself known to you. With that very same phrase in the Greek, in the Greek translation of the First Testament, the Septuagint that we have here, Jesus meant to pass by. In Job chapter 9, Job declares the glory of God. He does this repeatedly throughout the story in very poetic fashion. But there's language here in Job 9, perhaps the oldest written part of all of Scripture that I believe Mark knew and drew from, because I think the coincidence is too great to ignore. 
I'll, I'll jump it to from Job, four, Job 9, verse 4, 8, and then 10. You can read the whole passage if you would like, but hear this language and consider, hold Mark 6 and that story in line. Job declares, who has hardened himself against God? Remember, the disciples are, have become hardened in heart to see the glory of God. Who has hardened himself against God and come out unscathed? For God alone stretches out the heavens. God alone treads on the waves of the sea. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. Referring back to because I have hardened myself, or we have become hardened to see and receive the glory of God. Number three, and if you're astute, I believe you probably thought I was going here first because I think it is the most striking similarity to this passage. When Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 33 and 34, God reveals his glory to him. You may remember this story, Exodus 33:18. Moses says to God, show me your glory. Pretty bold request. And the Lord, Yahweh, says to him, I will cause all my goodness to pass by you. I will proclaim my name, says the Lord, which means I will reveal my character. I will reveal my glory. My full presence will be here. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by you. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Exodus 34 verse 5, the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him. I'm not sure how a cloud stands, but that's for a different message. He stood there with him and proclaimed his name, revealed his character and his glory, and he passed by Moses. Now, any, any Jew who understood their scriptures would have heard that phrase, and Jesus meant to pass by his disciples, treading on the waves, as the very opposite of what I think how we read it, that he meant to not be seen by them. He actually meant to be fully revealed to them in his glory, that they would see him and know him. And I see the Zegers dog Magnus running down the street. If anyone has the Zegers cell phone number, could you text them and let them know that Magnus is running down Union Hill Road? And I don't think they want that. They are celebrating two family birthdays today. I see Magnus passing by. Get them, get them 10 texts. I don't know. A lot of you have them. Thanks, Daniel. We begin to gain a greater understanding if we know the full story. And it's okay if you don't have access to how you would, how you would find that in fullness. One, be encouraged. There's always more richness in the story of God. There's always more. And come humbly to any passage when you say, I don't understand what this part means. I understand the rest of it, I think, 
Don't assume we confidently know. But how rich and amazing is God's story? And I believe that would have jumped off the page for anyone hearing it. He meant to pass by them in his glory, to tread on the waves, to go before them, to lead before them. He was, he was going to later be revealed in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was all building and culminating to that. In his full glory as the divine one, as embodying, remember, Jesus had just met with God on a mountaintop and was now going to be sent back through the waves, in the storm. There's so many parallels to, to the story throughout the Gospels, to the story of Israel's formation in Exodus. And we could look at, well, let me highlight just a couple of them. I wrote them down. Just as Moses was sent to rescue God's people who were enslaved and oppressed, Jesus was also sent. Luke 4, 18, Jesus was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Just as God had miraculously provided for his people day over day with bread from heaven, with manna, as we just recently looked at, Jesus is the bread of life, the bread from heaven. Jesus made that abundantly clear in John chapter 6, making that connection and that parallel, saying to them, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. Furthermore, just as God gave Moses authority over the sea to part it and to lead God's people through that, Jesus takes authority over the sea, over the winds, over the storm, treads upon it and leads God's people. There's a messianic prophecy from Isaiah, Isaiah 43, verse 1. Hear what God's word says, even to us today, a longing for our Messiah. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now, Isaiah wrote after the passage through the waters, proclaiming a future Messiah and saying to those who would follow him, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. This is often what prophecy is. It harkens back it speaks of something present or in the near future, and then it forecasts the forever reality of walking in the kingdom in greater and greater fullness. Just as Moses met with God on a mountaintop, as did Elijah, and was commissioned and empowered to go and to lead God's people, to establish the covenant in its fullness, to establish a kingdom of priests, Exodus chapter 19. Jesus met with God on a mountain and many times in the Aramon and was sent to establish a new covenant, a renewed kingdom of priests. Peter would say this in 1 Peter chapter 2. And now we're getting to the main point. Jesus is fulfilling all things, illuminating the entire story, enriching it, he is the glory of God passing by, going ahead of his people. Even the very words that he uses are significant and revealing. In the Greek, it is ego eimi when they see him. It is I, ego eimi. In the, in the translation of the First Testament into Greek, the Septuagint, which was, which, which was translated decades before Jesus came, it said when Moses beheld the glory of God, and God revealed himself from the burning bush, Exodus 3. That Greek translation says, ego eimi. When Moses asks, who are you? Who should I say you are that is sending me? Ego eimi. I am who I am. Even the very language jumps off the page to reveal the fullness of this story. 
Now that we better understand Mark's purpose in showing us this event, the glory of God being revealed in Jesus, his kingdom coming even in fullness, his fulfillment of the entire story of the formation of a people, and for all who would follow him, Jesus goes before us in the storm. He is present with us. He sees us. He has not left us alone. We can begin to respond to this and to receive it. Surely, we can receive the glory of God. We can be amazed at who he is revealed in Jesus. We can worship him and trust him. We can try to contrast ourselves from those disciples, although my guess is we're more like them than we would like to admit. And we could say, I would rightly see Jesus and not be terrified. I would worship and I would trust. I would follow him into any storm. Rightly, we are humbled and we see ourselves in the story. As Jesus comes and reveals the glory of God, no longer must we be hidden in the cleft of a rock. He has made it possible to dwell with him in fullness. The veil in the temple has been torn. No longer does he merely speak in a gentle whisper, though at times we find him in that place. He has revealed himself with full-throated voice in Jesus, proclaiming the coming of the kingdom. And rightly we respond like this, I hope we will today, in humility, in worship, in trust to the glory of God. But we also would rightly, humbly say, how are we more like these disciples than we want to admit? After all of they have seen and experienced even being given the very authority of Jesus to go and to heal the sick, to confront evil spirits, and to find, so to speak, victory in doing so. How are they still so unaware? And it was not that much earlier that Jesus had calmed the waves and the storm with a word. And here they are, completely unexpecting Jesus to show up and do anything. Mark says they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts had become hardened. It's a passive. They'd allowed them to become hardened by something external. Something in their circumstances or their experience had hardened their heart. Because other times we see them very soft and receptive to the teaching of Jesus and the will of Jesus. But something in their circumstances has hardened them so they cannot understand. That phrase hardening of heart throughout the Gospels is... They cannot understand and receive the teaching of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, or the signs of Jesus and his kingdom. I think we can understand, if we know the broader story here, of how their hearts had become hardened by circumstances. Perhaps they're consumed by their own desires, even holy ones, but they're not yet seen with kingdom eyes. And that's what's vital for us, that we would see with kingdom eyes the work that Jesus wants to do amongst us. It says they didn't understand about the loaves. The miracle, the sign of the loaves, as we've looked at, was revealing that God provides abundantly in all ways. He sees our need and he wants to fill it. He does not want to send us away. He cares for us in our practical daily needs. But beyond that, our spiritual ones, he satisfies our hunger in every way. And this says that the disciples did not understand it. Now, if you remember what preceded that, was long and wearying days. They were exhausted. They were worn out. They were depleted. And Jesus had said to them in verse 31 of chapter 6, come away by yourselves with me to a desolate place for rest. That was their mindset, a holy purpose. They're interrupted in finding that rest by these, these crowds of thousands of needy people that Jesus has compassion on. It doesn't say they did. 
Jesus did and poured himself out, they eventually muster up the strength in themselves to join him in this ministry, to pass out the loaves. That would take some time, wouldn't it? To throw a dinner party to fight for 5,000 people. Finally, the end of the day has come. Night has fallen. It's finally time to dismiss the crowds. And you can just imagine them thinking, okay, it's done. We finally get our rest with Jesus. We get our time. And what does Jesus do next at the beginning of this passage that we read? He sent them away by themselves. The Greek text is actually forceful. He made them get into a boat and go, which means they were resistant to that. Naturally, don't we experience, wouldn't we experience that same thing? What do you mean, leave us? You said, come away with you to rest, to be with you. He must have said, listen, I will join you. I'll, I'll meet you in Bethsaida. I need my rest first. I'll be there. Go ahead of me. But it said he made them. He needed to continually force them to get on this boat. Now he's left them. And like any 12 fleshly people, they're out there. They're grumbling. What are you, what do you, can you imagine the day we've had? And now he's sending us. And now the winds, we can't even make any headway. We can't even rest. I mean, at least, at least Jesus, give us the wind to get there. Can't you just feel that? I mean, either just weariness, discouragement, frustration, still not understanding, still trying to come to grasp. Is he our friend or not? Does he care for us or not? Wherever they got to a place where they were hardened in heart to not even expect, no one was saying, listen, he's going to come. He's going to meet us here. He sees us. He won't leave us here. Let's just be faithful. He'll come. It seems that no one was saying that anymore. Can you relate to that? Either finding yourself in that place now or knowing you've been there. The promises of Jesus seem like nothing anymore. They ha- they ha- they're not coming true for you. You're not experiencing them. Maybe the opposite. You've tried to be faithful. You've tried to serve. And all that's against you is the winds and the storms. You're not, you don't sense Jesus at all. You're either bitter and angry or you're, you're just hurt and confused. You're not expecting Jesus to show up. Your, your prayers and your cries out to him are like screaming into the wind. And you're just done. You're depleted. I'm guessing if you're not there, you know what it is to be there in the journey of faith. And I want to encourage you. No one who has tried to follow Jesus faithfully hasn't experienced what many have called this dark night of the soul. And if this actual event... In, in an actual night against the winds, didn't describe that for the disciples. I'm not sure what phrase would. This dark night of the soul where we feel like God has left us, his promises can't be trusted, my prayers aren't even answered, I'm not even sure if I'm loved anymore. Be encouraged you're not alone. Be encouraged God has been faithful. Sometimes our experiences and our circumstances Get us so myopic onto the, the what's right before us, and in the dark we can't see anything else. God sees us and sees our pain. Jesus saw the disciples, saw that they were struggling painfully. I believe he could not see them physically, so he saw them in heart. He saw them spiritually. He knew. He felt them. 
and he went to pass by them in glory. See, it just would not make sense to say he meant to make it so they wouldn't see him and to leave them there. Totally incongruent. He meant to reveal glory to them and remind them again that he would never leave them. They were never truly alone, though they might feel it. But their hearts had become hardened, so they, instead of responding to his glory with worship and trust, they're terrified. Sometimes we need to go through that shocking unsettling in order to see God rightly. Be encouraged. God has been faithful regardless of trials and hardships and unmet expectations that can make us quickly forget. He is with us. Be encouraged that whatever storm or resistance you're facing, his eyes are upon you. And as he saw the crowds of 5,000 needy, he sees us and has compassion on us in our pain and our struggle. What we need most from Jesus is not rest, provision, healing, deliverance, or his compassion Although he desires to give those all, and those are right desires, it's not what we need most. What we need most is to see him in his glory, experience him passing before us in our so-called storms and leading us, treading upon the waves. And I would ask you as we close, what if right now, wherever you find yourself in circumstances in life, and by, by God's grace, not all of us are experiencing this. Many of us are experiencing great joy and freedom and healing in this season of our life. But many others, and certainly in our world, are just deeply distraught, are leaving faith in general or the church completely because they can't trust to get the promises of God or the presence of God. They are in a dark night of the soul, and maybe so are you. What if right now is the moment before the appearance of the glory of Jesus. Whether that's his appearance in his promised return for his world, or whether that's his making himself known in glory to you personally, what if it is the moment before his revelation, his reminder of his presence, his provision, his compassion for you, that he has not left you, has seen you every moment. And though our eyes are right here, he is right here, about to pass by. His hand is upon you. Would we receive that today? Would we pray, Jesus, give us kingdom eyes, kingdom hearts. Give us kingdom memories, even from your stories that have been recorded throughout time of your faithfulness in your presence. If we are to endure the winds in this world, give us your kingdom strength and faithfulness to endure a bit longer. We pray, pass before us, God. Pass before us, go before us and reveal your glory and goodness. We receive your promise as true today. And when you hear again, Isaiah 43, 1, and receive that as we respond. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Amen.